Dr. Josh Umber, who's a family physician and CEO of Atlas MD, which provides electronic health record software to primary care physicians. Atlas MD caters mostly to DPC physicians or direct primary care, and Josh has 10 years of clinical education experience. Dr. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'd like to open this up with a quick icebreaker question. Can you think of either the funniest or the scariest thing that you've ever seen in a hospital setting? Boy, uh, scariest thing would uh, easily be a, um, there was a bank robber in a town where I was moonlighting as a, I was still a resident at the time. And so the FBI went after him and then and shot him, but he got away for a little while. So then there was a manhunt. And so the ER was on lockdown. Uh, with armed guards at all entrances, and then they got him, and he was pretty angry and kept swearing that you know people were going to come and, and break him out, and yada yada. No one ever did, but so it was a, a lot of drama. Uh, but then after that, I, I slept the rest of the night in the ER because no one would even approach the building when there were armed guards everywhere. So uh, it was you know eight hours of dozing for dollars as a resident uh, that worked out pretty well. Yeah, and then. One time, it's a long story, maybe for another podcast, but uh, the funniest thing was a wife who brought her husband in because he fell on her, his jet ski and th she thought he had a laceration of his rectum. He ended up breaking his coccyx and, and didn't need any stitches, but the whole event was uh, quite humorous. Oh boy, okay. Getting some pretty interesting answers to this question so far. So uh, I'd love to see what all the different specialties and demographics kind of uh, have to offer. <laughs> Oh, oh, man, you could have a, a wide range there. So, yeah, that's, that's funny. So what can you say about your role in education in the past or present? For us, it's a little different than uh, most clinics. Uh, we still try to do you know, a fair bit of, of just standard third-year, fourth-year type medicine, vignettes and teaching. But I, I think our strength is in doing a lot of business-level training definitely not something most residents or med students get from most rotations. So we can talk to them about financing, moonlighting, negotiations, and then just how our model of direct primary care works, how to get wholesale meds, how to get wholesale labs. We dive into a lot more of kind of the business of medicine for the people who rotate through our clinic. That seems to be becoming a more and more popular theme with every interview I do is really getting that business sense and education that uh, most of us did not receive during medical school. That's great to hear. Uh, you know, when I was in med school, um, it was very taboo and you know, professors and attending alike would, would shy away from it, uh, which is kind of interesting for a lot of reasons. One, I think we have this, this pretend ethos that money is bad, business is bad. It's we were taught it's, it's unprofessional and unbecoming of a physician or clinician to care about money. But at the end of the day, everything revolves around money. The professors aren't working for free. We've got med student loans. We've got bills to pay. We've got to eat. You know, all of this is very important. So I think what drove a lot of that was the fact that everything in healthcare is so expensive. We didn't want to really take that bull by the horns and feel like we were responsible for the big bills that patients were getting. And we are all looking out for our best interest and we want jobs that pay well and have good benefits, et cetera. We've obviously worked so hard. So on one level, we ignored it all and we got what I would call very bad outcomes. We got a lot of administrators and bad contracts and non-competes and burying your head in the sand is 
no way to address the problem. Uh, so we took a bad approach and we got bad results. That's altogether not too surprising. If we approach it in a way where kind capitalism or, or you know, different terms of compassionate capitalism, that's fine. I, I would say there's no difference. Good business is providing a good value for your customer. And, and we're working on supercomputers by all means because of good business and competition and transparency and choice. So if we take those things and apply them to what we do, we can be proud of it. And we can say, look, we're getting our patients, our consumer, a better product at a better price, faster, easier, and we're really responding to their needs. So it's nice to see students taking some pride in, in that overall approach of business isn't bad. It's a tool that can be used poorly but it's also a tool that can be used very well to enhance the patient experience, save them money and time, and, and again, add value. I know this chart has been going around for a few years now, but it's the number of physicians, the growth of physicians versus the growth of administrators. Yep. And that seems to go back very much to what you're saying. If the physicians knew more about the business, we wouldn't need these administrators. And then maybe healthcare would be uh, shaped a lot more a lot differently than it is yeah, right now. I, I think it's so true. It's, it's funny because it parallels education. And I think we talk a lot of, uh, in society about how we'd like to see education improve. And what we have is a system that's too complicated for what we're doing. But the self-fulfilling prophecy is we keep billing insurance and that gets expensive. And so then we get more people to help us bill insurance better. So they make it more expensive, more complicated, and round and round we go. But if we look at every other successful company, you know, unicorns, Uber didn't make getting a car harder. Airbnb didn't make getting a, a place to stay more expensive or more complicated. They streamline these things. They create more value, more simplicity, more convenience, and they find a way to do it at a better price. So while everyone else would completely understand why you would avoid unnecessary administrators, we've been doubling down on this theory that we will get to the promised land if we just keep adding more of them. Surprise, surprise, it hasn't worked. Yes, exactly. So it sounds like that actually segues perfectly to the next topic is you're in a direct primary care DPC or community setting. How do you think that varies for clinical experiences for students, for preceptors compared to maybe that hospital setting? Well, uh, you know, just different inpatient to outpatient, of course, and complexity of patient, but also um, instead of being in a standard insurance system where they might have six, seven, 10 minutes with a patient, uh, we could have 30 minutes with a patient, an hour. We might go do a home visit. We might do several procedures. I take care of a family all at once. All things that other doctors could do. You know, we, we never want to, to feel like we're chastising an insurance-based model, but they don't have the time or maybe they don't have the resources to do it. Most insurance-based practices aren't doing wholesale meds and aren't finding ways to negotiate CTs for 80% discounts. So I think the students are, are seeing that connection between a well-run practice and a business and how that affects the patients. So they're saying, okay, now that I've got a thyroid patient and I'm not limited by insurance and I'm not limited by a hospital bureaucracy and um, I can utilize technology and new resources, I could be texting this patient for the course of you know, a month while we're at the clinic and, and finding out 
okay, we, we did this and now we're going to try something else. We're going to make an adjustment. Is that working? Or they'll see a picture every day of a patient's sutures or abscess or a rash, and they can get a richer experience for how that's changing and evolving, whether the medicines are working or not, et cetera. So I, I think they see what medicine could be if you really had the time to dive into it completely. Yeah, I think that was something that Allison Edwards was saying on a past episode as well, is just explaining that she really has time for her patients. She gives them adequate time, but also availability, whether it be through almost immediate to immediate scheduling if they need to come in last minute, but also emails she checks regularly, has a bit of telemedicine and ways for them to communicate directly with her, which you just don't get in a non-DPC setting. Right. Um, if it's not an insurance reimbursable thing, it just often doesn't happen uh, in, in the normal model. And that I think is short-sighted on a lot of levels, but inherently self-limiting. I think an inherent flaw in physicians is we become very good students not necessarily very good independent thinkers. We're, we're very much, what is the test? How do I pass the test? You know, what makes everybody happy at, when they're a professor or an attending? But we're not really taught how to think. And we become very good Stepford wives. Good little pre-med students, good little med students, good little interns, good little residents, good little junior partners. And we, we just don't break that mold. That That is the mold for success. That is the mold of what other doctors have done, we're the low man on the totem pole. When we really shouldn't be, the system becomes a little bit paternal because there's always, quote, somebody supervising us. Even though we're, we're a customer paying them half a million dollars, a quarter to a million dollars to learn how to do medicine or to help their hospital as a resident provide free labor. So we don't think outside of the box. We find it uncomfortable to push past the normal and experiment a little bit. And unfortunately, that's the recipe for success in business or Silicon Valley or entrepreneurism is constantly looking for that new thing and going into your uncomfortable zones. Mm -hmm. You have to be comfortable shaking it up and trying something new out to see if it'll work better than what you're currently doing. Yeah, got to crack a lot of eggs. <laughs> so in your current clinic, do you only accept MD and DO students or is there a variation of the types of students allowed there? Uh, for the most part, we're just doing, yeah, medical students. We don't do a lot of uh, nurse practitioner or physician assistants in our clinic. Okay. What are some good skills or traits that you think make a really good preceptor in family medicine or more specifically in direct primary care? I think having the time to walk through cases with uh, students, but also being good at asking questions in the right way and avoiding those read my mind questions or questions that are too hard, but to work through the process and say, okay, well, we start off and we've got a patient hypothyroidism or concern for that. What are we testing? It's like, okay. And then when we're testing it, what does it cost? And, and really help them to ask good questions and then empower them. It's like, okay, if you don't know the answer, find out. So if a patient asks you what their labs are going to cost, could you tell them? And so we end up knowing the science of it really well. And the patients assume or th that we do. But the questions they're going to ask are often very different. May not help you pass a board, but definitely help you function in the hospital. So I think a good preceptor gets them out of just the textbook. You know, the textbook will get you past the test. What is the real world application of these things? And how do we teach you to find answers as opposed to just regurgitate answers? 
Yeah, good point. I think especially, uh, well, most students getting out of the first or second year, they come home for a break and all of a sudden all their friends and family are asking them questions. So I, I, yeah, I don't know that yet. That's not how, we, how we've learned yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you say there are particular unsafe practices for preceptors in family medicine, something to be wary of? I think when um, they get too busy and they start throwing students at things uh, that they're just not quite ready for, it's, it's hard to remember where you were at in your skill level when you were a student and then curriculums change and knowledge base change and then strong students, weak students and just throughout the year getting a, a third year family medicine student in June when they've had a whole year to learn stuff first in September and it might be their first rotation uh, that's, that's purely clinical. So really evaluating each student at the time, but then not throwing them into like, okay, we'll take these stitches out and let me know could be really simple or that could pop open again and be a problem. So if you're too busy, you're going to just use the students as more of a kind of a workhorse or what we always call it a scut monkey. And I think that's where very little learning happens. I'm all for students being able to just try stuff and fly on their own a little bit, but within safe boundaries. Okay. Yeah. I think that's one of the most common issues that I've heard from the student's point of view is just being a scut monkey, just filling out paperwork and not feeling like they're becoming an integral part of the decision-making process or being taught that way. Yeah. I, I've always felt like the, the paperwork is for the people getting paid for it. It's the part of the job no one likes and, and you got to learn it. And I understand some, it's not how I teach. I know great doctors who love to teach by seeing you know, what did you put in your note and what else could you do? But at the same time, I think there's this overemphasis on charting because we only get paid based on how we chart in a traditional model. And I think that's the wrong direction. You chart what's important and you can chart all day. And some docs just pages and pages of stuff. And that, that can be nice, but that can really slow you down and it can get excessive to the point of not helpful. So striking that happy balance. Yes, there's something more you could always put in the chart, but does it really change it? You know, your, your physical exam, you can do a 100-point physical exam just looking at a person, right? You know, they're walking and talking and breathing, and their pupils are equal around reactive to light if they walked in the building. You know, that, you know, you find so few abnormal things. In an insurance model, you're reimbursed for, for saying you did all this stuff. But if we're just asking questions or just charting normal for normal's sake, then it's, it's a waste of everybody's time. And I, I think it's a remnant of just an inefficient system. Couldn't agree more. Way too much paperwork. Yes. Yeah. That's not where the learning happens. I mean, it helps you organize your thoughts and it gives the other doc a way to see what your thoughts are. But I, I think there's better ways to do it for, for different learning learner types. Can you think of a particular time that maybe a student or another preceptor made a mistake or an exceptional learning experience that you really felt you took a lot away from? Um, you know, I think it was, uh, it was probably somewhere in residency. The times I think I learned the most was when I was moonlighting and on my own and strike that happy balance between uh, knowledgeable enough to, to do things safe, but then at the edge of your skill and scared enough to learn more. So I would go off and you know, work in the emergency room on the weekends, see stuff that maybe for the first time, you know, how do you do a hemorrhoidectomy? Those type of things don't come into the office very often. So you can go three years of residency and not learn it. But then you can see a bunch in the ER if you're unlucky. And so you, learning how to teach yourself is, ends up being very invaluable. 
uh, again, back to students being very good kind of rule followers, it becomes very uncomfortable for docs to learn once they're out of residency. And so I've never did that procedure. True, but is it a doable procedure? Um, you see this with internists all the time. You know, as we talk to them about starting a clinic and, and doing procedures, oh, I, I, I refer all my biopsies off. So well, it's a two millimeter biopsy. I walk med students through it. We learned it once. We could learn it again if it saves our patient a few hundred dollars. Uh, well, that's true, but I'm, I'm just so nervous about this. Yeah, so we, we make learning very difficult and we get used to doing it in a certain textbook way. So I think the best learning experiences were when I was safely you know, at, at the edge of my learning and could come back to residency and ask very good questions of other doctors and say, okay, here's the patient I had and, and the issue I was dealing with. Here's what I did. You know, where are the pearls and where are the pitfalls? Oh, it sounds like it always comes back to that getting out of your comfort zone. You have to be a little bit comfortable there, you know, not be a cowboy and go too far, but uh, you're either, you know, of a growth mindset or you're not. And I think it's really important that we allow docs to be of a growth mindset and say, yes, I'm not going to learn everything I possibly can in three years. But if it means, you know, good patient outcomes or access to care, or helping them, saving them money, you can be open and honest with them and say, hey, I don't do a lot of this but I can send you to the doc down the road who will do it for a thousand or we can work through this together. And that comfort zone comes from doctors like, well, I don't have 30 minutes to spend with the patient. So the best thing I'm doing for them is referring them to a specialist. And that might be true in a current 30 people a day model, but it doesn't have to be. So, you know, using the benefit of a direct care model where you have time and resources and access for patients take that to its full benefit by finding more ways to, to be valuable. And it really comes down to patient options. Then you're giving them a decision. Do they want you to do it real quick or send off and, and maybe be more expensive, but maybe someone with more experience. Yeah. And, and nothing wrong with having that conversation with patients. You know, some are just going to say, Hey doc, I love you. You're probably great at derm, but I'm just nervous about this mole and I want to see a dermatologist. And, in our model, that's not a problem. But then if someone comes to us and says, I can't get away to a specialist or I don't have the money for one, or I don't have insurance, what are you going to do? I'm going to work really hard. And I'd rather be spending a lot of time working really hard for a patient who has a need than spending most of my day doing charts for insurance that doesn't really add value. Mm, good point. Okay. With the one-minute preceptor model, there are five steps and we've already sort of gone over these without, so accidentally, it seems to be a common thing. Many physicians do this model without really knowing they're doing this model, but to simplify it for students, it's five steps. The first one being get a commitment. It sounds like sending a student in, having them come out and tell you what's going on and what the plan of action is supports that. And then probing for supporting evidence. The one that I'm really curious about is how steps three and four in this are reinforcing what was done well and giving guidance about errors and omission. Do you have any particular thoughts on how to do that reinforcement and how to guide about errors? Guide the students about errors of omission. Yes. That's, that's a hard one because the doc would have to know it wasn't there. You know, if it's a live omission, you didn't say anything, no one may know. I think that's the definition of professionalism is doing the right thing when no one's looking uh, or when you don't want to. Our patients won't always do the right thing. 
uh, we have to. We're professionals. We're trained. We expect more of our patients than we can get sometimes, but that's, that's okay. They should always be able to expect that as a professional, we're going to do the right thing when given the opportunity. So probably the best way to do that is lead by example and show the residents this is what it looks like when you, know, you make a mistake, you own up to it, you discuss the things that you know, could have gone wrong or what you should have done better yourself. And if they feel like it's an environment that's safe for admitting to mistakes uh, and being open about this, then that's a culture that they're going to respond to and make it a safe learning environment. Like that's another very common theme I've been noticing is the culture about making mistakes. It starts early, even from the medical student point of view, and it sometimes can be difficult for them to admit that they made a mistake and that might not, uh, it might not dissipate later on either just because there's such a culture around that. We expect ourselves to be perfect. That's part of the mental trauma that comes with medical school training. We're not. We're not perfect, and patients aren't perfect, and, and surgeries aren't perfect, and their bodies don't heal the way they're supposed to heal, and randomness happens, and we can't stop that, and we shouldn't pretend that we can, or we can try, we can be aware of it, and, and predict it, and look for it, but uh, pretending we'll be perfect is is ridiculous, and uh, we would tell our patients that, you know, if they came to us and, and their stress and anxiety were coming from this spot, if they had to be 100%, we'd say, ah, don't don't worry about it. But we won't take that advice yourself. We, I never got 100% on any test, let alone all my tests. You know, I joke about that with patients all the time. So I say, you know, if this is what I think it's going to be, but hey, we'll try medicine. We'll find out. We'll get some blood work. Uh, we'll work through this. And if I'm wrong, we'll move on to the next you know, possible thing it could be. And I think it's very refreshing for patients. They don't expect me to be on airs. They know that I'll admit it if, like, yeah, boy, I really thought it was going to be your thyroid, and it's not. So interesting. Let's move on to the next most likely diagnosis, and here's my thought process. There's an interesting marketing article on, on being strong or weak and uh, friendly or, or not. It's funny because it references doctors, and doctors are horrible salespeople. But in this quadrant, you, know, you want to be strong and friendly, not weak and, and mean. So you know, the strong, friendly approach is, hey, here's what I think we should do. You know, I think we should get a CT and some blood work, but here's our options, one, two, and three. It's not waffling around. It's not mean. It's not restricted to the patient, but they can see, okay, here's where they stand, and I've got a couple of options, and we're going to work together on that. It seems like that also helps to build a genuine relationship. Yeah, and it's a time-based thing. There's some joke, and I wish I could remember it all, but you can get 40 guys to work on a project and get it done 40 times faster. But if you're going to make a baby, it's one woman in nine months, you know, and you can't get 40 women together and cook that baby any quicker. Like, so some tasks just take the time they take. And what I think we try to do in medicine is say, well, we're going to speed through this and we're going to have the patient fill out a review of systems before all this other stuff, or the nurse will take the vitals and ask the first couple and the doc will swoop in and in seven minutes, figure it all out. It's just not the way it works. It takes time. They want to tell you about their vacation. They're afraid to bring up their alcoholism. So they're hoping to avoid it or that you'll bring it up. And, you know, just people being messy, just sort of the beautiful art of it all. And if it takes 30 minutes to talk a patient through this, say, well, I'd like to start with the CT, but they really want to start with blood work. Either one could be okay, 
tell them the thought process, the pros, the cons, but together we do this. And that's a luxury of time that not all docs have because they have to see 30 people in a day. Yeah, very true. So from the student's point of view, if they wanted to rotate with you, are there any traits or skills or personality aspects that you expect from the students when they start? I'd say in general, an open mind and preferably kind of pet peeve for me is be somewhat tech savvy. I say that, you know, broadly knowing that A, we've helped over 800 doctors start practices and we're building software for doctors. So we see the gamut of everything from what is a PDF to, hey, can I help code some of this and everything in between. But the the thing that'll make people successful, I, I really see that as an important skill undertaught in med school, undertaught everywhere. Uh, if you're good at Google, you can find answers that other people can't. And, and that can be a, a handful of tricks that could be learned from a YouTube video in 10 minutes, but could radically change the way you're able to research things for patients going forward. Um, your ability to text and email well. Now, most students can do that, but you know we find some who can't or aren't good at researching or collecting information or don't know how to take a screenshot. And so then if they don't take a screenshot, they don't communicate questions as well. And all that comes together. So the better we are at technology, email, internet, basic stuff. I'm not asking anyone to learn how to become a programmer, but I think it's amazing how much of an impact that has on our ability to help patients and ourselves. You know, I'm twice as fast dictating. And so I dictate with Dragon most of my notes and most of my emails. And, and that means I get to show up at 8.30 and leave at 5.30 and, and do a lot more than other docs because I'm squeezing a lot more out of my time. And, and little things like that or, or macros so I can type four letters and get a whole note about weight loss or viral infections or migraines. So I don't have to redo that work every time. So we have this idea that there's plagiarism or a professor is going to review what we do and these kind of things. But again, the system is focus on all the insurance paperwork, not on stuff that's for the patients. But these are the tools we're going to use all day, every day for our career. The better we get at these, these things, I, I really do think the more successful, the happier we'll be, fight burnout, provide more family time, more value to patients, et cetera. So. It sounds like you really need to be a businessman, entrepreneur, and listen to a lot of productivity podcasts and information out there and do everything to become as efficient as possible and well-rounded as possible. A a little bit. uh, You take learning seriously. I I think we get stuck in this boring version of learning, which is all textbook and all lecture style, but there's so much to learn from podcasts like this one, other ones, uh, audio books. So you could, if you read, most Americans won't finish one book after high school which is amazing. We find a lot of doctors that won't finish a book after residency. Well, but you know, I mean, we read CME and stuff, but in terms of we, we study from within our own space. But if you look and see, well, what can we learn about the delivery of uh, patient care by Zappos, the shoe company? Well, it turns out a whole lot if you read about what they do, because they deal with people too, and customers and schedules and, and things. And Starbucks has a better way of handling upset people than, than most doctors do, but they very intentionally went through that. But these things are all out there and they're easy books. We think every book is a, a complicated, again, manual or textbook. But if we can pull in what other successful industries are doing, that cross-pollination enriches everything. 
and I think it'll make us better doctors, better spouses. We can constantly be learning, and that's the whole idea behind a growth mindset. We are in control of our future. We have more education than most. We have more money than most, more experience. I think we can take that, and if we carve off what I'd call the dead weight of a broken system, it really opens up a lot of potential. Couldn't agree more. And the growth mindset also keeps getting brought up. So I'm loving these common themes that really enforce some of the strong points that, uh, that students can try to fit in early on. So for your specific clinic and demographic, are there any unique aspects about the setting that we haven't covered yet? Anything that students might not be aware of or didn't learn about a medical school? Um, I think just the direct care model. Yeah, it's, we're seeing a lot of interest from students, but there's a lot who are hearing about it for the first time. I think their biggest shock is that there's a way to do it outside of insurance. Yeah, that's, that's just the big, hairy, 800-pound status quo. And for them to realize that there are other ways to do this, that they could take kind of control over this, they could create their own and create a ton of value, actually solve problems. We talk about all these things, you know, insurance and big pharma and Medicare and and all this noise and I think it robs the individual doctor. We blame everybody else. We don't actually take ownership of this and say, hey, what are you going to do for med prices? Oh, I have no idea. Well, there's a solution out there. But like the weird part is first you have to believe that there is a solution, that you can ask that question because everybody, the most expensive words in business, that's the way we've always done it. And we do that in medicine. In fact, we were on a military base and the, the new commander gave his speech and their theme for that lecture series was don't defend stupidity and they said look just because we tell you to go over a hill doesn't mean it's the right thing to do and if it's not the right thing to do we want independent thinkers tell us why it's not the right thing to do and don't don't blindly follow orders and this whole great speech is like man, he could have replaced all the military words with medical words that he just described my residency right <laughs> you know because we just well why do we do it that way because this is how this hospital does these things and then we just implant that as students and we don't break away from that. The more we kind of push back and empower docs again, not to God complex, you know, that wasn't good, but enough to have some independent kind of hoops to it and say, no, this, if there's, if there's a broken thing, I should step in and fix it. I have the authority. I have the position, the administrators, they're never going to be able to order wholesale meds. You have to be a licensed professional to do that. The same thing for the wholesale labs or to negotiate prices. So it really comes down to us. If we, if we don't take ownership of this problem, no one else is in the position that we are, so no one else can, can fix it like we can. I think that comes across as brand new ideas to a lot of students, and, and we'd like to see that change. Yeah, most physicians too, students and physicians aren't aware of some of the other options, and hopefully through mediums such as this podcast and other similar materials, it'll help raise awareness that there might be another way, at least yeah. some direction to explore it a little further. Right. And then for students that rotate with you, if they wanted a letter of recommendation, are there certain tips or things that they should or should not do? Um, they should listen. Uh, we find that to be an interesting problem is, uh, and, and this is true of, of a lot of people. So I want to just target students. Are you some of the, I think the most profound thing, someone told my partner was, are, are you listening or are you just waiting for your turn to talk? Or, you know, and, and true communication and not just nodding, um, not jumping in, not interrupting, realizing some people are working through a thought. 
you've got to do that for the patient. Some old study said doctors interrupt patients within like you know, 12 seconds. Well, yeah, because they're busy. They're trying to do this all in seven minutes. But it doesn't mean it's a good way to do it. In the exam room, sit, be quiet. Let this kind of come to you. Be an expert in these patient interactions. And, you know, so the success comes down to little things. Showing up on time, listening well, looking for ways to uh, help out and work. Uh, and that's true, I think, of all businesses. Napoleon Hill has some great books on this, and, and so do several others. But success comes down to uh, very simple skills with expert execution. Perfect. I think you mentioned a couple of uh, habits there from Seven Habits, <laughs> being proactive, probably for yeah. talking stuff like that. It's uh, it, yeah, simple things done well. Yeah. All right. So here's a personal question. There's two options. You could pick either one, or you can answer both if you want to. So the first one. Is there anything that you would have done differently in your education or career? Or the second one is, what is one dream that you would like to see happen in medicine in your lifetime? Yeah, I'll take both those. I would have quit going to lecture sooner in med school, and probably undergrad too. I had to learn early. Uh, I'm not a lecture learner. And, and trying to force myself into that square peg, square hole wasn't going to work. And I just did better listening to the lectures or reviewing material on my own and, and yada, yada. Again, that's a break the mold. You're a doc, you're a med student. Make strong decisions for yourself and not just follow the, the path. I would have started reading business books and kind of business novels much sooner. Uh, just a, a wealth of information that can be learned from these. And it's amazing how many books you can f finish in a year. These are eight hours. At double speed, they're four hours, which means in most people's commute in a week, they can finish a book. Um, the average the average CEO reads 62 books a year. I think docs you know, can take a page from that, pun intended, and, and be that committed to learning too. And we're reading all kinds of other stuff, but that doesn't mean we can't read uh, other things to enhance our, our skills. And then something I'd hope to see in, in medicine uh, in our lifetime. I really do think direct primary care, uh, direct care in general, because specialists will get involved. I think that will be the, the primary way that we deliver healthcare in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, we're already working in Saudi Arabia and Nigeria and have talked to doctors in Canada. Every country has a broken healthcare system because they're overly complex. And whether you are a fan of a free market system or a universal government-run system, in a weird way, they both need some version of direct care to streamline and simplify. If you think that healthcare makes up 20% of our economy uh, and roughly an equal burden on other economies, the sooner we can fix this, the, I think we can change lives. People are spending $1,200, $1,500 a month on health insurance and it should be under 500. That means if we fix this for them, then they get a thousand extra dollars in their pocket every month. That means retirement, that means college savings, that means getting out of debt, that means all kinds of things. And so our ability to do no harm can extend out to things besides just our clinic walls. So I'm, I'm very excited for the future. That's going to be a significant difference. And even a lot of us uh, medical students aren't always properly insured. And that's preventative care. That's something that we could have maybe taken care of this thing before it grew into something else, which is, right. which is the same with everyone. <laughs> Do you have any resources for students, whether it be for family medicine or direct primary care or even business that you would recommend to a student? 
great business book or, or life book, The Icarus Deception by Seth Godin. I think that's just fantastic. I think anytime that you can find uh, a course on technology to improve your skill set, we're working off smartphones that are, again, supercomputers. The more you can use that tool, the farther your skill sets can go, the more successful you can be. And then for direct care, uh, there's a number of Facebook pages and, and other great podcasts, a wealth of information uh, to Google. Even though I keep saying innovate and think for yourself, at the same time, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Go out and see what other docs are doing. Compile a list of that. Try to find the failures. Again, something we don't do in medicine, embrace failure. Silicon Valley loves to fail fast. Doesn't mean it's, you know, we're not trying to make people fail, but we're going to learn from every failure. So really throw themselves into something they can find purpose in. And uh, if that's direct care, there's, there's plenty of resources. Awesome. And we'll add some of those into the show notes. Do you have any parting thoughts for students? I think that's it for the day. How about for physicians that might be interested in direct primary care or Atlas MD? Yeah, any, anyone interested in direct care, we do all the consulting for free, no matter what software they use. And we're passionate about this. And we know rising tides raise all ships. So anyone can reach out to us at hello at atlas.md. We've got all of our consulting materials and startup materials online uh, so that anybody who wants to learn about this model can talk to us directly or, or learn from it from our websites. Perfect. Well, Dr. Josh, thank you so much for coming on and explaining DPC and all these great business resources. And I think it's uh, going to be a very beneficial and valuable episode for the listeners. Excellent. Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and med-ed entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco.